And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic I think it's hard for a player to feel trusted and embraced on that level when you're not one of those 11, 12 lieutenants that are starting most weeks Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic I'm your host, Danny Kelly. Alongside me today are the Athletics' Tim Spears, Jack Pickbrook, and a very special guest, our South American football expert, Jack Lang. On today's episode, we're going to do a deep dive into Spurs' £60 million signing, Richarlison, who scored more goals for Brazil at last year's World Cup than he has in totality for Spurs. Remember this? Vinicius. Richarlison. Oh, that's fantastic. Second from Richarlison. Doubles Brazil's lead. I hate to suggest that the first touch is a miscontrol, but it is. The second isn't. The second is as clean as they come. Yeah, that was Richarlison's incredible strike against Serbia at the World Cup. One of his three goals for Brazil in Qatar. And of course, one of the goals that's been nominated for the Puskas Award for the best global goal of the year, which could see a third Spurs player in succession win the Puskas Award. None of them, Harry Kane. Chew on that for a while, everybody. But as I say, for Spurs, he has only scored Richarlison twice, with both of those coming against Marseille in that Champions League group stage. Before we analyse his time at Spurs, let's just take a, a look back at Richarlison, the person. First of all, Jack, you wrote an in-depth profile of the player a while ago, and I'm talking to Jack Lang here. First of all, let me say welcome to Other Jack. How are you? Good, thank you. Pleasure to be here. And Other Jack? I'm also fine, thank you. Good. <laughs> Tim, who, thank God your name isn't also Jack. You okay? <laughs> Very well, thanks, Danny. Well, let's get going about Richarlison. I wanted to do this at the first half of today's podcast because, you know, a, a club which is notoriously careful about how it throws its cash about really did spend a lot of money in the summer. And as yet, for reasons that we shall go into now, he is not setting the world alight or has not been allowed to set the world alight. But uh, Jack Lang, remind me, then you wrote a piece about the fellow. What, what, was, the, what was the thrust of it? Well, it was entitled The Richarlison You Don't Know. Basically, it, it kind of turned into a bigger thing than I had expected. I had planned to write a kind of slightly fun thing about a few weird things about him that I had noticed. He was kind of becoming famous in Brazil for these quirky little stories. Like uh, a good example is after scoring in the Copa America final in 2019, he dedicated his goal to his grandma and then managed to forget her name on live TV. Uh, just little weird moments like that. And I thought there may be something in that. So I spoke to a few people who knew him earlier in his career and kind of serendipity, really. It, it, a lot of people had a lot to say about him, a lot of stories and highlighted his weirdness, as I had hoped they would. And But also his kind of social conscience, his 
his ability to make connections with people throughout his career. So yeah, it turned into more of a kind of the man behind the scowl because I know he's not universally popular in the Premier League. And yeah, it just kind of went from there really. It's so difficult, isn't it, when when when, when players these days find it, you know, there's such a distance between players and the press. And it, it's easy to just become, have a stereotype view of, of this kind of player who rushes around. Uh, Jack, and you found more to him than that on a personal level, yes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, funnily enough, it, you know, there can be a tendency when we do these long pieces, there is a, there is almost by definition a confirmation bias, right? Because you ask for stories about someone, people who have got good things to say will tell you those things. And people who, don't like the person will tend to, you know, hold their counsel. But I was honestly not expecting quite such gushing reviews of him as a person. I've, you know, I was at that Copa America that Brazil won and had seen him kind of firsthand, spoke to him in the mix zone a couple of times. And he's, after a quite a shy start to his career, he was a very shy young footballer. He, he'd kind of become this, not quite media darling, but certainly someone who kind of, seemed to enjoy his media work, who spoke pretty well, pretty honestly. But yeah, as I said before, I wasn't quite expecting that level of praise for him. And it, it's, I think it is nice to hear because a lot of footballers, you know, will do these kind of PR happy things. But most of this was from early in his career when the PR really wasn't a factor. So I think uh, it led me to believe that that is a genuine part of his personality and not just, uh, you know, a recent addition for the benefit of, of public image. Jack Pitbrook, you'll remember that when Spurs signed him and there was a certain amount of surprise because that was a lot of money um, for a pro, even though he was a pro and Premier League player. But I think I was, I think I was pretty excited that Spurs would then have a player who could not only cover all three of the front positions, but would challenge all these uh, the other players and be a starter in his own right. It hasn't worked out that like that. Yeah, first of all, let me remember, were you as excited as me when they signed him? Yeah, I was excited because I think he is. A, I've always enjoyed watching him play. I think he's a very good player. I think he's also you know a big and kind of attractive character in his own right. I think it made sense at the time as a signing because we all know how dependent Spurs have been on Kane and Son in the last few years. And we all know, you know, that Tottenham have been one injury away from becoming a much worse team up front. The the strange thing, really, is that I think he was signed with the expectation that Kane or Son would probably get injured at some point this season. Don't say because it. They're I know. Playing, because they're playing so much football, because they're, you know, they're, they're now, well, Son is 30, Kane's close to 30. There was the World Cup as well. And of course, if Kane or Son got injured, Richarlison would be an amazing guy to come straight in, whether playing as a number nine, which I think is probably his preferred position, or in the Son role out on the left, where we've seen him play a lot. But strangely enough, Kane and Son haven't got injured. Uh, the only guy who has got injured is Kulisevsky. And so Richarlison has played, I think he's started three games out on the left, but started much more games in Kulisevsky's position. And it doesn't quite click. Like, it's not, it's a bit unbalanced so it's yeah it's been a strange combination of factors that have seen him not really playing in the positions we thought he would play only 14 appearances in the Premier League so far a lot of us been off the bench here he's only played 500 minutes so you know we're talking sort of five and a half full games but they've they've been spread along you know a lot of late substitute appearances and sort of the odd start here or there not really had a certainly hasn't had a rhythm of sort of five, six, seven consecutive starts, which I feel is is what he needs now, really. And there are mitigating circumstances as, as to why we haven't seen, you know, the true Richarlison yet. It's but it's not just the goal scoring, it's we haven't really seen this sort of talismanic figure who sort of 
dragged Everton to safety, kicking and screaming last season. But we haven't even really seen the wind-up merchant too much either, really. You know, but there, was, there were those keepy uppies at Forest. But other than that, he just he's ha- hasn't looked himself. Um, well, he's, he's old, his certain... old mate Romero's in charge of that usually, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but there were certain you know mitigating circumstances. I mean. Even for his performance against West Ham, I mean, he's, he's obviously as his first, it's his first start in quite some time. You know, he was he had Ben Davis to his left, which certainly wasn't ideal. First time Ben Ben Davis did okay, but that's the first time that he's played at left wing back under Conte. And as Jack says, you know, he's played a lot on the right, so he's played eleven times on the right for Spurs. And of his two hundred sixty career appearances, he's only played forty four times on on sort of the right of a of an attack. So it's not a typical position for him. But then I guess. That sort of goes back to the question of 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 why sign him um, for sixty million pounds when, you know, Conte said fairly recently that Son, Kane, and Lloris are his three sort of key indispensable players, I guess. And by indispensable, you'd sort of say undroppable. And I know Son's just been dropped, but it took a it took a prolonged run of form for Son uh, it took, to be it dropped. Took Conte's absence from the actual room. Yeah, exactly. So I guess you know, as 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 much as Spurs and, and Conte want to sort of top level or world-class players for every position. I feel like they're certainly weaker in other areas of the squad um, in terms of in terms of where they perhaps should look strengthened in the summer. But it, it feels to me like it was a very opportunistic deal. Didn't necessarily come across as something where Spurs had scouted Richarlison for two years and, and, and he was the final piece of the jigsaw and, you know, let's spend £60 million on him. You know, from what I'm told, Le- Levy sort of spearheaded the move and kind of saw it. He was the first of the sort of Premier League chairman to recognise that Everton were in serious financial peril last summer and that and there could be a deal to be done there for someone who's entering into his prime for a pretty good deal in today's financial market. I mean, Jack Lang, do you think he, do you think he was surprised to find himself going from Everton to the capital city to a club that was in the Champions League? Because it, it all seemed to come out of the blue, didn't it? He was someone who was linked with very top clubs, from quite early in his time in Everton, like, you know, Watford to Everton was a very logical move for him. A step up, but again, not, you know, didn't come with tremendous pressure in terms of Champions League football and so on. And the clubs that were being linked to him, you know, Barcelona was a name that repeatedly came up. And, you know, thinking about that, they were a team who maybe, you know, in the kind of post-Suarez picture did have a vacancy at centre forward and Hishalison could have gone there and been potentially a, a starter most weeks, but not a a guarantee name on the team sheet. And yeah, Spurs was a slightly from left field pick, obviously a step up from Everton. Champions League football was presumably a bit of a draw for him. But like the other guys have said, not not someone who was necessarily bought to fill an obvious hole. I think the, you know, the philosophy behind it, Tim rightly says, is it was opportunistic. You you get the chance to sign what is, in my view, a, a very good player. You do it. And that's, you know, that's kind of, that's big club mentality anyway. You, th- you think of Manchester United and Sir Alex Ferguson, when they bought someone, it wasn't always to fill a gaping hole in the squad. Chance comes up to buy a good player, you buy him. And then you think about it later and eventually you hope there's enough games to go round, which, you know, Champions League and cup runs, there may be. But yeah, I'm sure he's looking at it now and thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe this wasn't as smart for me on the personal level. And yeah, I think there are going to be some conversations over the next few weeks and months. Yeah, I certainly gather that Richarlison is pretty frustrated as you would be with how things have 
how his first season at Tottenham's gone so far. Hasn't started that many games. Certainly hasn't started games in the position that he feels are his best positions. So, uh, you know, I think that's perfectly un- understandable. He did look really frustrated when he he got taken off against West Ham last Sunday, didn't he? Because that was his, you know, his first start for a while. I think everybody was looking forward to seeing him play. It didn't quite work out for him. And he looked pretty crestfallen when he got hooked in the second half. So, yeah, I hope for his sake that he manages to uh, to make a bit more of an impression over the last uh, two or three months of the season. I mean, you know, you, you, we end up, because we are so distanced um, from the players, snatching at tiny straws. There was that piece of video that emerged of him playing uh, some computer game with his uh, compatriots, uh, Emerson Royale and, and, and Lucas Moura, um, and them doing the mocking chicken dance when they scored against him. And he was laughing and joking with them. And you hope that he's still, you know, a, a happy bunny. Spurs has struck me, made a problem for themselves slightly with Richards in that they, they knew they have a manager who doesn't rotate the team. Okay, so you say, but there is natural rotation because Kane or Kulusevsky or Son could get injured or could go out of form. Part of the problem, it seems to me, is that Son's form has been so calamitous that they couldn't drop him. They felt they had to kind of play him back into form until it just became even that wasn't working. If, if Son had been playing as good as he can, then have a couple of bad matches, we'll give him a rest. That had been one thing. But they kind of used the first team to try and rehabilitate Son's form, which of course has cut Richarlison out of the team. That is a great point. I mean, I hadn't thought about it that way before. Um, clearly, Conte has an approach which is the same guys play every week, except for one, only one or two positions in the team ever get rotated. Clearly, he had. There was no expectation at the club that Son would go from. I mean, Son has basically gone from Liverpool Fernando Torres to Chelsea Fernando Torres overnight, and it's uh, Tottenham had no plan for this. I don't really feel like they've got a plan to to fix it either. And yeah, they have persisted with playing Son because he's Son, and to be honest, you know, if they did drop him for the for the West Ham game and play Richarlis instead. They could have done that months ago. I know they did it against Leicester back in September, but the fact they've only done that twice is kind of bizarre, really, given that they've got this bloke who's such a good player, Richarlison, who would have loved the chance to play in Son's position. So I think, yeah, he, he's been unfortunate that Tottenham have taken this rather strange t- decision to keep playing Son, no matter how badly he plays. And I imagine Richarlison must be thinking, well, it's not very meritocratic, is it? Should, should point out the injury issues that he had as well. He had that what was the injury he had leading up to the World Cup, and then obviously he's come back with a with a hamstring problem, which you know, they were they were very wary of you know being careful with rushing him back too soon. And th- th- those were certainly felt like Son's worst periods of form, you know, before and after the World Cup. So there was, there's there's definitely that as well. Jack, I don't know if your if your um, research into Richarlison led you to understand what kind of and I always think this about foreign players, particularly ones from really far away, you know, away from Europe. Has he got support systems? Who will be looking after him during this? What for him is in a career that has gone up and up and up and reached a peak, if you like, in the World Cup. Has he got friends, family, or is it just him and his agent? As far as I know, he's got a pretty good setup around him. He's got his agent who's close to him. He's got his kind of PR image guy who, you know, but I think think they're, you know, that's a, a personal friendship rather than a, completely transactional thing. Uh, the one thing I would say about him is that he's someone who throughout his career has really thrived on paternal relationships with his coaches. So thinking back to his time at Fluminense, which is kind of where he made his breakthrough in Brazil, he had uh, a guy called Abel Braga, who is like platonic ideal of, you know, the, the father figure, he kind of a very friendly 
gentle guy who really put his arm around Hishalison and kind of brought him through some tricky moments, stood by Hishalison even when there was a, a moment when he was kind of trying to force a leave out of the club. This Abel Braga stood by him and made sure he took the lessons from that, but wasn't alienated from the fans. Uh, Michael Silva again at Watford and then took him to Everton as well. I think that was a really close relationship. And yeah, I'm sure from what I've seen of Conte, like, you know, his his trusted players may feel that kind of connection. But as the other two have rightly said, Conte isn't someone who rotates. And I think even if the personal relationship is fine, I don't, I haven't heard otherwise. I think it's hard for a, a player to feel trusted and embraced on that level when you're not one of those 11, 12 uh, lieutenants that are, are starting most weeks. So, yeah, I, I wonder whether that element is maybe lacking, the feeling that, okay, I'm with someone who trusts me, who trusts everything I do. Um, I think he's someone who needs to feel that um, in order to perform. And, of course, we've talked about his Brazil form. Chichi, the Brazil coach, was definitely someone who, from a very early stage in his Brazil career, really nailed his colours to the mast about his Charleston. You know, his Charleston came into the side, I think, in his first season at Everton. And Chichi, from the very start, made it hugely clear, okay, this guy is, is going to be a part of my side. He said, he smells of goals, was his famous phrase. And yeah, I mean, Michalison's Brazil um, record is pretty spectacular. I mean, a goal every other game, roughly. No, no, it's exactly, recently. it's 20 and 40, I think, isn't it? It's really good, you, really good. Yeah, but if you zoom in, you know, on the more recent, since the start of 2022, I worked out, he averages a goal every 63 minutes. For Brazil, you know, and that is for a team with that comes with a significant amount of pressure at World Cups and qualifiers. You know, this isn't someone who can't do it at the top level. He may not be, you know, as technically refined as a Kane, maybe even a Son. But if you put him in the right areas and the right system, he will score goals for you. So, yeah, the question is whether he can break into that kind of... Uh, Conte central group. I mean, I mean, Tite, Tite went very far with this. Tite went very. He was prepared to leave Gabriel Jesus out of the squad to stop there being any quarterback controversy, as they say in America. At one stage, so, when the Brazilian press started saying we should be trying Gabriel Jesus instead of him, he, he intimated he would leave him out of the squad to stop this kind of talk. To that point that Jack made about the relationships that Richarlison likes to have with his managers I don't think it I mean I think he is far from the only player who has suffered a little bit from the lack of you know traditional arm around the shoulder man management at Tottenham this season I think there's you know that and that that's both players who are out of the team so for example uh Bissouma but also players even players who are in the team like Lloris, Son, Dyer. there's a lot of players who are clearly not playing as well as they did last season and who I you know I, I know that there is certainly a feeling around the place that some of those guys could do with a bit more, a bit more, I don't know, pastoral care, motivation, that kind of stuff, which may be a sort of more, you know, some managers are better at that than others. It's not really something that Conte does an awful lot. And I think the kind of, you know, you, you can tell that the mood at the, um, and there's other reasons for that as well, which, we, which we've spoken about in the past, but you can tell that certainly some players at Tottenham are not enjoying their football as much as they have, as much as they might do. And I think Richarlison is certainly one of them. Tim, let me ask you then. We, we are where we are. We know he's a good player because um, what we did in the World Cup and even those two goals against Marseille showed that he can feed off the crowd, get a chance against good opposition, score the goals. 
Are we? Am I panicking here? I think Spurs are in danger of not utilising to its full, i.e. wasting a £60 million investment, or with the run of games Spurs still have to go in this season, is is that his best hope, that um, the sheer volume of football will, will force the management to, to get find a place for him in the team more regularly? Yeah, you, you are panicking, Danny. It's, it's, it is it's typical okay. of me, to be fair. <laughs> no, I do, I do feel like we're all being right, you know, down on the situation, and rightly so, because it hasn't worked out yet, and it's a lot of money, and we're a decent way into the season now. However, it can turn quite quickly. I'd like to think that he'll start against Chelsea on on Sunday and get an op- another opportunity to show what he can do and start building up that sharpness. I feel like him starting and, and Son coming off the bench makes sense right now, particularly with with how Son is is becoming a, you know an effective substitute. And I think Richarlison has more to offer right now. You know, Son's been given more chances than he's than he's earned on on this season's form. And as as Jack Lang says, you know this 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 is a player who who can be prolific, and his you know his last six goals have all come for Brazil. I was watching all the goals he scored last year. He scored twenty last year in twenty twenty two. Bad team, and yeah, and he you know he's he's not a, a score a goal out of nothing person, but he but he will take chances in the box, and that's where the majority of his goals come from. You know, in central areas, sort of between the edge of the box and and, and the penalty spot. A couple of overhead kicks, a couple of pens, and a couple of headers. But but other than that, it's it's kind of snappy, smart finishes, quick finishes that surprise the goalkeeper in the penalty area. And Spurs could do with someone like that, really, especially when Harry Kane comes so deep. And we did see a, a, a couple of sort of instances of how of how their relationship might work against West Ham. At one point, Kane came deep and played a, a really nice through ball, which was just too strong for Richarlison to hit it first time. And, you know, he did get shot away in the end, which was saved. But he's, you know, he formed a, a prolific partnership with Dominic Calvert-Lewin at Everton, you know, a, a similar type of player who would come deep to try and feed Richarlison with, with flick-ons and, and through balls. So um, there's there's certainly sort of template there for how he can fit into this team. And I think, yeah, given given Son's ineffectiveness for over a prolonged period and and the fact that he's looked good off the bench better in a, in a few games this season makes me think, you know, that's the way to go now, um, certainly against Chelsea uh, on Sunday. You, Jack Pitbrook, you, you share the optimism that we may see the best of him in, in, towards the end of the season? I hope so. I think it would be... I think it'd be difficult because he, he did look, when he scored those goals against Marseille in the group stage, which is quite a long time ago now, you felt at that point like he was maybe going to generate some momentum and he had some really good, uh, he was really good against Nottingham Forest off the bench and, you know, there were there were good moments back then. But now it feels like he's kind of got to start from scratch again. So And it's going to be difficult because, again, we don't know where he's going to play, how much he's going to play. So I'd, I'd love to be really optimistic about his minutes and his form and, like to, to see him finish finish the season with a flourish of goals, but I I probably wouldn't bet on it at the moment. A last word on this to you then, other Jack, as we have to learn to call you. Given what you know about him, given the way Spurs are, given what remains of the of the season, and given that course that football is chaos, and we won't hold you to your opinion. Oh, but what are we likely to be looking back at after the end of the first season? We we'll, we'll look back on Richarlison as a waste, um, a good addition as a squad player, or ah, there is the player we thought we had. Oh, well, I, well, I hope he gets a chance. I hope he gets a, a few games because I think he he can he is good enough to play for Spurs. I think he's good enough to you know both fill in when the other guys aren't there, and I think he's good enough to to be in the rotation, even if that's not really the Conte way. Uh, what I think is that he well he's an ambitious guy. I think he I think he knows his value. So I I'm sure if the rest of the season goes as it has so far. There are going to be 
yeah, there's going to be some thinking to do in the summer. And uh, frankly, I think he's the kind of guy that if Spurs can't tap into that, I think there's a good chance that in two or three seasons, they will be looking at one that got away because I, I think in other circumstances with a run of games, you know, maybe not at a Manchester City level, but, you know, a, a solid Champions League contender. I, could, I can see him going to, let's say, Barcelona when Lewandowski can't do it anymore and, and being a starter and scoring a lot of goals. So I think the, the impetus is there on Spurs to kind of unlock this guy because 60 million is a lot of money. But frankly, I think that's probably about the, uh, the right kind of amount he's worth. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yeah, the familiar strains of McNamara's band there, the official version that we managed to prize out of the club. Brings us to the second half of today's edition of View from the Lane. Jack Lang, thanks to him very much indeed, has now gone off to practice tennis swing, as I understand it. Question here came in uh, from Mertzi Merman on Twitter, who said, and inter- interested me, he said, Hi guys, question for the next pod. Should Hoiberg be considered our player of the season so far? Kane broke the record, Benson Kerr is so elegant. 
But does it go a bit unnoticed how consistently the Dane reads the game, intercepts passes and makes decent progressive plays? Thanks, he says in advance. I was interested in this, Jack, because Harry Kane has been the leading goal scorer for Spurs in the last eight seasons. He's clearly going to be, unless, unless something brilliant happens with Richarlison, he's going to be the leading goal scorer for a ninth successive season. Yet in that time, Tim, he has won the Spurs Player of the Year award twice. No, yeah, twice. He's, he's been Spurs Player of the Year twice. Son Heung-min has won it three of the last four years. And my suspicion is that uh, whoever awards it, I think, is a mixture of players and the players and the fans are kind of discounting the Harry Kane factor. And I'm going to do that here as well, because what would Spurs do without him? But behind that, Jack, I think there's a very, very good case for Hoiberg being the player of the year. Or am I wrong about that? Because I, I like him because he's he works tough and he works hard. Yeah, I mean, he has. I, th- I do think he has been good this year. I think I'd have him in third place behind Benton Kerr and Kane. When Bentico got injured the other week, I tweeted something like, Bentico's been Spurs' best player this season. And I had a lot of people saying, what, has Harry Kane not played for Spurs then? And I actually think that was a completely fair response. I too have wondered in the recent past, why does Harry Kane never win Spurs Player of the Year? Why is he? Why do Spurs fans take him for granted so much? And so I think in because of that, I... I have to recognise the fact that giving it to Benton Kerr, who has been fantastic, he's been really, really good this year, uh, anointing Benton Kerr as Spurs' player of the season so far would be to take Harry Kane for granted yet again. So I'm going to consciously not take Harry Kane for granted and say that Kane has been the best. I do think Hoiberg has been really good and very consistent, but for me, I'd still have him on the uh, in the bronze medal for the season. Maybe they're trying to pour on courage les autres. They're trying to encourage the others to catch up with Kane. Exactly. That's, that's yeah, my yeah. guess. Tim, what do you make of the Spurs player of the year so far? I feel like it has to, it has to be Kane. It's like a 70-80% of the vote, Kane. Like he's that he's like he scored 17 and 23. So he's probably going to hit 25 goals this season, which I think would be sort of like his his third best total. But you know, he's he's consistently probably their most creative player. He's their best defender from the front. Well, we you know we all know this. He does everything. It's clearly Harry Kane. However, I'd, I'd completely agree with Jack. To be honest, I mean, it, Bentancourt probably won't be second because there's another three months of the season to go, and we'll, we'll, we'll we won't remember the his contribution quite months so well. as we know them. Um, so yeah, Hoiberg. I, I remember when I started, we discussed Hoiberg a few times in September when I started covering the club because he was sort of. I remember Danny, you asking my opinion of which side of the fence he won because it seemed like he was like a love or hate player and that's not how I've experienced him like he feels quite inoffensive to me I'm not sure how you can hate him really because he's very consistent he's very hard working not particularly flashy but as as the listener says with with the question you know he do, he does do more than just you know carry the ball he's sort of a, a you know a water carrier with with accessories really I think he's the barometer of the team often you know he always nearly always you know he's seven out of ten and when he is a couple of notches above that, the team tends to play very well. The examples I'd give is he was magnificent against Manchester City. He was fantastic. A week later, he is really bad against Leicester, really poor, makes no influence on the game at all, and the team falls to pieces. I'm not saying he's that important. I'm saying that he's often a barometer of how the team is doing itself. Um, and thank you very much indeed for the question, Mertzi. One theory as to why he often looks so bad is the fact that Hoiberg is like no one is more willing than Hoiberg at Tottenham to play through injuries. 
you know, it's a very, very common thing at Tottenham is Hojbjerg will have like a bad kick on his ankle and it, will, and it will swollen up and he will really, really want to play when other players might say, you know what, I'm not, you know, I'm not able to, to, to play in this particular game. So I, I, imag- I would imagine that a lot of the time Hojbjerg is going out onto the pitch, you know, at sort of 50, 60, 70% readiness when other players wouldn't. And he, he obviously wants to do this for the right reasons, but it often means that he's not he's not physically able to do what he needs to do on the pitch. I have no idea if that was specifically the case for Leicester, although I do know that that has often been the case in the last few years. Uh, last point on this, and again, thank you for the question. If Benton Kerr had to get a long-term injury, it's a real shame, but if he had to get it, given that Spurs have got two relatively young, inexperienced players uh, as the alternatives in, in Saar and Skip, I can't think of a better player to have beside you if you're coming into a, a team, you know, with very few minutes under under your belt than Hoiberg. He will do the running. He will do the instructing. Um, and I think he'll be, hopefully he'll be a great partner to either or both of them um, in the coming weeks. Now, head of playing Chelsea this weekend, let's take a trip down memory lane to remember a special, special win over the Blues. Tough character, the Dutchman. You don't get around him easily, but he has with a great bit of skill. And Leonard with a chance. Will this finally be Tottenham's day? 16 young years they've waited to beat Chelsea. Is the wait over? I wonder. Yeah, that, I mean, it's already 16 years, coming up 17 years since that goal went in. But people like me who follow Spurs closely, that was one, a, a, an extraordinarily important goal by Aaron Lennon. It was a 2-1 winner over Chelsea in 2006. And remarkably... It ended, and you two will shake your heads when I say this, a 30-game run in which Spurs did not beat their local rivals. Bear in mind this was also during a run where they didn't beat Arsenal for about 20 games either. And I remember when Martin Yol first joined the club, I had the privilege, because I was working for BBC London, to spend the day with him really early in his time there. And after the players had gone home, and I said, Martin, one of the things you've got to do here is you've got to start winning against Arsenal and Chelsea because the Spurs fans are just going insane um, that they cannot win the local derbies. Now, Martin, to his credit, otherwise told me that was none of his business. The past is the past, and he was going to go forward from there. But the result of that extraordinary thing that happened at the end of the last century and the start of this is that Chelsea have gone on being Spurs' bogey team. And I put it to you two, perhaps less invested emotionally than me, that even more than the Arsenal game, where after Wenger started to fade, Spurs have had some decent results, this Chelsea game keeps on coming. They go into the game at the weekend, having never beaten them at the new stadium. They go into the game this weekend, having never scored against them at the new stadium. And my famous thing about it was that Spurs have written an encyclopedia of ways to lose football matches just from their performance against Chelsea. They found new ways to lose these games. Jack, I ask you first, well, you've been following Spurs a bit longer than, than Tim has in detail. Am I right? The Spurs, the Spurs fans. So this is the game that they really fear. This blinking Chelsea match. Yeah, I think Tottenham. I think you're right that Tottenham have much more of a complex uh, when it comes to Chelsea than they do with Arsenal. Obviously, you know, I'm not saying that it's a bigger rivalry, but Tottenham have got you know up until this season a pretty good, pretty good record against Arsenal and beaten them quite consistently at home. Tottenham against Chelsea, their record is really poor. That the last time they beat them in N17 was the Deli Ali two headers game, which was six years ago. 
back when Antonio Conte was Chelsea manager. And they the number of times that Chelsea, even when they've been in a bad moment, have come up against Tottenham, and you can just tell that the Tottenham players don't think they can win. It's a problem that predates Conte. You know, we had this in, under Mourinho. We had, even had under Pochettino, where Tottenham's record under Pochettino against Chelsea was fine, but there were still some big games where they completely wilted, like not least the 2017 FA Cup semi-final. And on top of all of this, you've got the fact that Conte himself has a complex about Chelsea. He has a big, huge chip on his shoulder about about his time at Chelsea, his relationship with Bramovich and Marina and the way that he left. And we saw it last year when he got kind of just incredibly like almost over motivated. He kind of he cared too much about those games. It obviously got into his head. He played the he, he did something incredibly out of character and played 4-4-2. And Stanford Bridge didn't work. And so I mean I I I I'm not expecting him to even be around the, this weekend, but Clearly, that is another factor in this in this mix as well. So, yeah, I mean, because in theory, you'd say that, that Tottenham should be able to win this game. But, Danny, it's such a mental... I just wonder if they've got a mental block. Oh, I think they have. And it, it, it gets to the following things happen, don't they? You have Kane's late equaliser at the bridge this season, celebrated by people like me. Um, I wanted an open-top bus parade. Um, you know, down Tottenham High Road because they hadn't lost at Stamford Bridge. You get the mental situation where they, they had that wonderful 5-2 win over Chelsea several years ago now. I think it was very close to being a New Year's Day fixture. I can't remember exactly. And I came away thinking, God, Eden Hazard is a brilliant player, isn't he? I had a seat which allowed me to watch him very closely. He's the best player on the pitch in a five-goal defeat. And, of course... I get terrible pelters for this, Tim. Asked, well, as I sometimes am by other podcasts or people, for my favourite Spurs game ever. Not my favourite Spurs moment. There are millions of those. My favourite Spurs game, I I have to say, the the famous Battle of the Bridge, where Spurs officially lost the league title to Leicester. I loved that game because Spurs stood up and were counted physically because Chelsea have kicked Spurs out of this game again and again and again. I don't mean illegally. I mean, just by being better physically than Spurs. And if you remember rightly, I think, was there nine yellow cards for the outfield players in that game? Harry Kane ran 40 yards to commit a foul. And I've always thought that Toby Alderweireld should have been fined for not getting a yellow card that day. Everyone else managed it. Tim, were you aware of how bad Spurs do against Chelsea before you took up your current um, employment? Yes, it's, it's, it's very commonly known. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is. I mean, you, you're going to hate me for saying it, but surely there's not a better time to play Chelsea than uh, there's been this dozens weekend. of better times, and we can we haven't beaten them. <laughs> I mean, they look so they look so vulnerable. I remember looking at the date of this fixture. Was it back in August after after Handshake Gate? I'm really looking forward to the to the box office rematch. I mean, it's it's remarkable to think that neither yeah neither Tuchel or Conte will actually be there. Of course, on um, on Sunday. What's interesting for me about this game certainly love the Spurs approaching it. Loved it. Um, <laughs> Certainly from the approach of Spurs going into it is, is they've actually got quite a few selection dilemmas for this game. So, you know, you look at either Richarlison or Son, which obviously we, we've spoken about. You can make an argument for Skip or Saar in midfield. And then, you know, the, the, the wing-backs, surely Ben Davis can't play again as much as he sort of acquitted himself really well against West Ham. You'd imagine Perisic will come back in. And then you've got Royale or, or Porro at right wing-back. Again, you'd probably imagine Royale will, will keep his place for this one. And Spurs will enlist a similar approach to what they did against against West Ham, which would mean an awful first half. I'm really, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, we've seen some shockers this season, but this is 
hopefully I'm jinxing it here and it'll be a great game, but you've got to imagine it's going to be an absolutely atrocious first half because Chelsea, like I said, are so vulnerable. You know, they're, they're desperately trying to create that solid base under Potter. And as we know, Spurs don't go hell for leather in first halves either, but they've certainly got a, a good chance of beating them. Tim, I, I don't know you well enough to know, but besides talking about and analysing and writing about football so skillfully, have you got any other skills? Because I get the impression that during that first half against West Ham, you were considering your your long-term employment future, yeah? <laughs> oh, you got, God. Can you, I yeah, mean, are you, yeah. are you a plumber? Are you an electrician? There's good money to be made. I'll 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 train to be anything, Danny. Just just don't make me watch Spurs first half again. Okay, well let's let's take let's get a Chelsea view on this. The Blues, as you've mentioned, they're a bit they're struggling, aren't they? They're marooned in tenth place in the table despite a huge outlay on players over the last twelve months. There's pressure on the manager Graham Potter, which the Americans at the moment seem to be resisting. Um, let's get the latest on the situation from the Athletics Chelsea correspondent Liam Toomey. When you factor in everything, results, performances, expectations, spending, there's a strong case to make that no Premier League club has ever had a worse season than Chelsea are having right now. And that includes Chelsea in 2015-16 when Jose Mourinho's Premier League title defence crumbled into an almost unthinkable relegation battle before he was sacked just prior to Christmas. Chelsea's results are worse than that right now and, and Southampton felt like the nadir. They were booed off at half-time and full-time, the first half in particular. They looked like a, a team fighting relegation against the managerless Southampton side who were far more motivated, far more intense. And for Chelsea fans, this was too much to stomach because it, it also represented a big step back from a performance against Borussia Dortmund that I think a lot of people took heart from. Chelsea had looked better in that game. They'd looked a bit more cohesive. They were unlucky to lose, really, to one counter-attack at Signal Iduna Park and and I think Chelsea fans were were ready to to mark a turning point at home to Southampton at the end of this incredibly bad run of form. Instead it's just going on and the next three matches feel pretty defining for Graham Potter. As much as we've been consistently hearing from ownership that they want to give him time, they consider him still the right architect of this long-term project at Chelsea and there's an understanding of the circumstances, the the rapid turnover of players, the unprecedented injury crisis, just the constant flux at the club over the last year or so. The next three games do feel very significant for Graham Potter. If there are two clubs that, that, that Chelsea fans dislike more than any other, it's Tottenham and Leeds. And then immediately after those two games is the return leg against Borussia Dortmund. And you have to think that if Graham Potter doesn't win any of those games, the fans could make his position untenable regardless of what the owners want to do. Graham Potter's a coach in dire need of a win. Yeah, Liam Toomey, the Athletics Chelsea correspondent there, talking about the fans and the role they might play if things don't go well ongoingly for, for Potter. Tim, you've odd, uh, oddly enough written a piece in the Athletics just now about Spurs and Chelsea swapping their managers. Yeah, I think, uh, I'm not sure if this is online yet, but it will be in the next sort of day or two. Just an idea that the sort of me and Liam were were presented with, as in Liam Toomey, our Chelsea correspondent, that uh, Graham Potter and Antonio Conte are, are, are perhaps um, would perhaps be better served at, at, at opposite clubs, just in fact, in the fact of, you know, Spurs as a club taking a very sort of long-term approach, young sign-ins, um, and Chelsea, you know, looking looking to buy the title with a ready-made team, um, which feels like it will be ready-made for someone like Conte. And obviously, <laughs> the prospect of him going back there feels extremely far-fetched. 
But the prospect of Potter at Spurs feels, you know, a little bit more likely. And, you know, that the planets are sort of moving closer to the fact that, you know, Potter may find himself unemployed and in need of a of a three-month break uh, soon, maybe. And Spurs may be in need of a new head coach, you know, in, in a similar sort of time frame. Um, Jack will know far more about this than, than me. Yeah, so Potter was on the um, kind of the initial Steve Hitchin shortlist for the Tottenham job. This is in May 2021 when they were looking around for the the post Mourinho replacement, and b- before they had the idea of Paratici and Conte, which obviously eventually became Paratici and Nuno. Um, so Tottenham spoke to Potter. I think you know he was very highly thought of inside the building. I think he was also would have been quite expensive to get out of Brighton at that point. I don't think Potter was especially pushing for. Tottenham at that juncture and so you know they ended up going for for Nuno instead under slightly under different circumstances with Paratici in the building it is interesting to think would I mean two questions one is would Tottenham have been better off if they'd gone for someone like Potter off that list and I think the answer is probably yes in the sort of medium to long term I think you can also throw in Eric Ten Hag with that like Ten Hag was very prominent on that on that list, they spoke to him. They really liked him. Daniel Levy wasn't fully convinced, and um, you know he's obviously now at Manchester United. The other question is: now that Potter is at Chelsea, and I suppose we got to, we got we we have to say it's plausible that he might leave Chelsea soonish. Would it would it work for him to come to Tottenham in future? And I don't know. I mean, I think I'm not sure the Tottenham fans would accept yet another former Chelsea manager. Even though I think Potter would have been a great candidate back when he was at Brighton, but. I think if he fails at Chelsea and is sacked, would Spurs fans want him at Tottenham? I don't. I'm, I don't know if they would or not. I don't know. I think it's something in what you say there, Jack. And first of all, the, the piece you've written, Tim. Luckily, my pronouncements are recorded, so I don't think I'm making this up. I boiled this down a few weeks ago to the, the idea. You know, Chelsea are a win now club with a project manager. Spurs are a project club with a win now manager. The whole thing is ridiculous. And the answer to your question, Jack, I guess. I think, I don't know Graham Potter, but I have a great deal of affection for him because when we started my Trans-Europe Express programme on on, on Talk Sport years and years ago, he was the only English-speaking manager working in Europe. He was in Sweden. And he would come on once a month just to tell us how things were going. And it was was clear then he was an intelligent, affable, forward-thinking sort of guy. But I think, and this is is the ludicrous thing about professional football – I don't think that much of what's happening at Chelsea right now, much of it, I don't think, is, is his fault. And yet I think he's suffering reputational damage now. There are people who go to, go to clubs and you, and you say, oh, you can't manage PSG, it's nuts. Whether we like it or not, the amount of players he's been given, the fact that they can't get results, please, God, let that continue at the weekend, tells me he is actually suffering from reputational damage. I want to end the podcast by reminding people to go online and just put Christian Romero's name in. That film of him, two-footed scissors tackling his tiny toddler in the hallway of his home is available for you to see. I was delighted with it because I thought it showed that Christian understands that, you know, he's he's got a performative side to his nature and he also needs to just rein it in a little bit like he does when he's at his very, very, very best, where he doesn't send the toddler spinning into the middle of next week but actually embraces him at the end of it. It's a brilliant thing. Go and see it if you haven't already. Thank you very much to Tim and Jack and the other Jack as well, Jack Lang, for helping with this podcast. And reminder to you all, as I always do, that there is a whole world of brilliant coverage of football, particularly Spurs, but everything on The Athletic. And if you're not already a subscriber, you need to sign up now. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Sign up now if you like. 
for $1.99 a month. That's for the first 12 months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. We'll be back on Monday where I hope I'll be talking about another fantastic win for Spurs at home in a London derby. I would really, really like that. The Athletic.